Welcome to Shabbat Shalom. This is your host, Sam Frankart, and this is episode 48. So, update for you before we get into chapter 13 in the book of Revelation. I am leaving for Nepal next week. So, um, yeah, this is probably one of my last episodes for a while, and I'll talk more about that at the end of the podcast. But yeah, I, I got home from Georgia and I had camp and then, yeah, I got to spend some time with friends and family and it's wild. Y'all, I've been planning to go to Nepal since last October and here I am just a week away. So um, yeah, I'm not sure what internet's going to look like. So this is going to be a longer episode just because I want to get through the entire chapter 13 instead of breaking it into two episodes. So heads up on that a little bit longer, but we'll get through 18 verses today. So a big chunk of text. And then hopefully when I get to Nepal, we'll be able to continue in chapter 14. So let's get started. We're picking up today in chapter 13 and we'll be studying the whole chapter and breaking it into two sections. So I'll read verses one through 10 and then 11 through the end. This chapter introduces Satan's two evil accomplices, the beast out of the sea, also known as the Antichrist, and the beast out of the earth, which is also known as the false prophet. Together with Satan as the dragon, these three evil beings form an unholy trinity in direct opposition to the holy trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Something we notice all throughout scripture and history, and even now, Satan is not creative. He simply copies God. We see that God operates as three in one, and when Satan attempts to take power, he copies God by creating his own trinity. And this is a theme that we'll be hitting on a lot throughout chapter 13. So in this chapter, we'll learn more about Satan's accomplices. Let's get started with reading verses 1 through 10. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to make war against God's people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, and all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. So, in this section, we read about the first beast who rose out of the sea. 
So interesting side note before we dig into these verses. Many people today, including myself, love the sea. But as a whole, the Jewish people in biblical times regarded the sea as wild, untamed, and frightening. So for this beast to rise out of this sea, that would be just extremely frightening. So though this beast is distinct from the dragon of Revelation 12, he is still closely identified with him because of the seven heads and ten horns. The dragon has seven crowns on his seven heads, whereas the beast has ten crowns on his ten horns. And this could be a picture of the dragon's authority over the beast. It could also mean that there are ten leaders who followed the beast and their crowns symbolize their authority. This would connect well to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 2 and 7. In Daniel's vision, the ten horns specifically represented ten kingdoms that the final world dictator has authority over. You can read more about that in Daniel 7 verse 24. In John's vision, the ten crowns on the ten horns emphasize this idea. So here we're reading about the Antichrist. And the word Antichrist only appears in the Bible five times in four verses. Those verses are 1 John 2.18, 2.22, 4.3, and 2 John 7. So 1 John 2.18 is a good example. He writes, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. And the idea of the Antichrist has captured the imagination of many people. But what really is the Antichrist? We can begin by understanding what the title Antichrist means. The prefix anti may mean the opposite of or instead of. And the Antichrist is opposite Jesus. He is the instead of Jesus. Most people have focused on the idea of the opposite Jesus. And this has made them think that the Antichrist will appear as a supremely evil person that as much as Jesus went around doing good, he will go around doing bad. As much as Jesus' character and personality was beautiful and attractive, the Antichrist's character and personality will be ugly and repulsive. And as much as Jesus spoke only truth, the Antichrist will speak only lies. Well, this emphasizes the idea of the opposite Jesus too much. The Antichrist will instead be more of an instead of Jesus. He will look wonderful and be charming and successful. He will be the ultimate winner and appear as an angel of light. So in this sense, the Antichrist will be a satanic messiah instead of the true messiah, Jesus Christ. So in 1 John 2.18, John also spoke of the Antichrist and many Antichrist. So there's a spirit of the Antichrist, and this spirit of the Antichrist will one day find its ultimate fulfillment in the uppercase Antichrist, like the big A. Um, and this person will lead humanity in an end times rebellion against God. In other words, though the world still waits to see the ultimate revelation of the Antichrist, there are little previews of this man. And these Antichrists are like with a little A. So the spirit of the Antichrist has already been around. Here, in Revelation 13, many see the beast as a person, specifically the Antichrist with a capital A, this final satanic dictator who will lead the world in rebellion against God. And it's the dragon who gave him power, his throne, and his great authority. This world leader is really empowered and supported by Satan. And through this man, Satan will express his own desire and authority. 
We read in verse 3 that one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. So this head wound, a mortal wound, was not a superficial injury. This is truly an antichrist who even imitates Jesus in his death and resurrection. The world will believe this and it will add tremendously to his fame and power. The world will be amazed at the power of the beast and will believe he is so mighty that he cannot be conquered. And for a time, the beast will look like a winner. Some scholars actually think that the beast will bring world peace so that no one can fight against him. But that peace will be based on domination and without real substance, and so it'll be shallow and short-lived. So verses 5 through 7 record a series of passive verbs regarding the Antichrist. Here are a couple, or I guess three of them. He was given a mouth and time to exercise his authority. He was allowed to wage war, and he was given authority to rule. So this passive voice indicates that these had either been given by the dragon, Satan, or by God. And either way, God has control over Satan's activities. So God is still in control. All right, we're up to verses 7 through 8. So just to keep us on track, I'm going to read those. It was given power to make war against God's people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So it was granted to him to make war with the saints. Revelation 12 described the satanic persecution during the tribulation period in broad terms. Here, the main instrument of that persecution is revealed. The government of the beast will persecute and kill all those who do not bow down and worship to the beast. The Antichrist would quote-unquote conquer believers, but he could only do so physically as part of this world. In reality, those who died for their faith are the ultimate overcomers, like we read about in Revelation 12:11. Like I said in the podcast where I was talking about Revelation 12, this is one of my favorite verses. Part of it says, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And so really, he's not conquering believers because they're able to live forever with Jesus. We read in verse 8 that all who dwell on the earth will worship him. This final world dictator will demand and receive worship from the whole earth, but those who worship him pay the price. They are those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So two things here. First, the Book of Life. What is that? So the Book of Life contains the names of all God's redeemed, and we'll read more about that in Revelation 20 verse 15. It's the idea that worshiping the beast and having your name in the book of life are mutually exclusive. You cannot do both. And second, the lamb. So we know that the lamb is Jesus, and, and we read that this is the lamb who is slain from the foundation of the world. So this deeply meaningful title for Jesus reminds us that God's plan of redemption was set in place before he even created the beings who would be redeemed. God wasn't surprised by the fall of Adam or any other evidence of the fallen nature of man. God isn't making it up as he goes along. It was all going according to plan. 
So verses 9 through 10 are, it starts off with verse 9 saying, whoever has ears, let them hear. And then there's a quoted section. And so that, that saying, he who has an ear, let him hear. This introduces a solemn word of warning meant to capture the attention of all who hear. And then the verses quoted here are from Jeremiah 15 too. And the basic point is that the captivity would be divine judgment upon the rebellious nation of Israel, and there was nothing anyone could do to stop it. That was in Jeremiah 15 too. The verses here describe how believers should act during this time of tribulation by the beast. We must understand that God is in control. I think I've said that a couple times, but just in case we missed it, God is in control. He already has a plan. Some who are destined for prison will be taken to prison. Some who are destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. John wrote that believers must stand up for their faith, but they must not take arms and attempt to fight. Their job at this point would be to show endurance and faith. God has the battle under control. All right, so we're going to move into the next section of Revelation 13. So I'll be reading verses 11 through 18, and then we'll study those together. So starting in verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had become healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of everyone. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let those who have insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. So John writes in verse 11 that he saw another beast. This creature represents someone like the beast rising from the sea because the same word beast is used to describe them both. At the same time, this beast is different. It had two horns like a lamb, and the two horns may express the fact that this beast has authority in two realms, such as religious and political authority, or he may have two horns simply because that's how many horns lambs have, two horns like a lamb. And then we read that he spoke like a dragon. So despite his lamb-like appearance, the message of the second beast is the same message of the first beast. And the second beast is often called the false prophet. And we can read about that in Revelation 16, 13, 19, 20, and 2010. And he's someone that's distinct from the first beast, which is the Antichrist, and the dragon, who's Satan. So with the dragon, the beast rising from the sea, and the beast rising from the land, we have the unholy trinity that I was talking about at the beginning. The dragon is the anti-father, the beast rising from the sea is the anti-Christ, and the beast rising from the land is the anti-Holy Spirit. 
So moving on to verses 12 through 15, we read that he exercises all the authority of the first beast. So the beast rising up from the earth is essentially a satanic prophet who leads the world to worship the beast and the dragon. And we also read that he performs great signs. So the beast rising from the sea had the signs and wonders to back up his false teaching. A specific miracle of the false prophet is described. He makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in sight of men. And it's important that John highlights this miracle. In the eyes of the deceived world, it answers the miracle of the two witnesses who ministered during this period and are persecuted by the Antichrist and his false prophet. And we read about those two witnesses in Revelation 11, verse 5. To the deceived world, this also puts this false prophet in the class of Elijah in 1 Kings 18. And we can imagine the false prophet as he was saying, Something like, let the true God answer the fire, and then performing his deceptive wonder, which is similar to what Elijah did with the true God. Um, so you can check that out in 1 Kings 18. This is, it's like a similar, it's a callback to that. Also, in the ancient days of the Exodus, Aaron performed miracles, and up to a point that was matched miracle for miracle by the magicians of Egypt, and that was in Exodus 7 through 9. Allowing the Bible to guide our faith and practice will keep us from being deceived by false signs, however convincing they appear to be. Any teaching that contradicts God's word is false. So, verse 14. As with all worship that is not of the one true God, the worship of the beast is idolatry. And and we see here that he's calling people to worship the beast. We might wonder how it's possible for people to follow or worship an image. And this in particular makes me think of Daniel with the statue of Nebuchadnezzar that was set up in Babylon where he made people worship. And one would think that we, as a people, have grown since then, that we wouldn't bow down to statues any longer. But this is a pattern we see even in recent history. All we have to do is remember totalitarian totalitarian, man, why is that word so hard? Totalitarian, there you go. (laughs) Totalitarian states like the Soviet Union or communist China. And they had their omnipresent pictures of Stalin or Mao. And we see a pattern that will be ultimately fulfilled by the Antichrist. This idolatrous image is what Jesus, Daniel, and Paul spoke of as the abomination of desolation. And that's in Daniel 9, 27, Matthew 24, 15, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. It's an idolatrous image that's set up in the holy place of a rebuilt temple. This abomination, it's in a sense of being supreme idolatry and desolation in the sense that it will bring the judgment described by the seals, trumpets, and bulls. So verses 16 through 17, and I'm going to read these. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So he forced all to receive a mark. So under the government of the beast and his associate, all will be given a mark. Those who accepted it showed their allegiance to Satan, their willingness to operate within the economic system he promoted, and their rebellion against God. To refuse the mark meant committing oneself entirely to God, 
preferring death to compromising one's faith. The technology to give people a mark that enables them to buy and sell in the electronic economy is available. There are many different ways it could happen, and such programs are proposed and tested constantly. And I know this has been a question over the last 18 months or so. COVID, man, is this happening now? Um, We have to get this vaccination in order to move around. Maybe there's going to be a vaccine passport. And so is, is COVID the beginning of this? And I mean, the technology is available, like I said, but we don't have all of the things like the signs that are coming before this economic system. So if you read Revelation as though it's in chronological order, it wouldn't make sense that COVID is the answer to receiving a mark. Um, And I know that that has been argued by some Christians. um, And so I just wanted to touch on that really quick about, um, yeah, the vaccine being the mark. So it's interesting to think about, but if you read this chronologically, it doesn't make sense. We do have to be vigilant and we have to be prudent and we have to be discerning. So my encouragement there is just to pray and ask for discernment in what to do, what not to do, and how to move forward best with Jesus' command to love God and love people. What do we do? So anyways, back to this, back off of that rabbit trail. So those who have received the mark on their right hand or their foreheads. So Satan is not a creative being. All he can do is imitate God. We're not surprised to find that this too is a satanic parody of something God will do. He imitates God's mark upon people, like we read about in Revelation 7, verses 3 through 4. And then the number of his name. And this was a common concept in the ancient world. In Greek and Hebrew as well, letters were assigned a numerical value, such as A equaling 1, B equaling 2, and so forth. So, for example, graffiti in the ruins of Pompeii read, I love her whose number is 545. So, yeah, just a common concept in the ancient world. Today, we don't obviously use that so much. But then in verse 18, we read that his number is 666. So, does this tell us who the beast is? And by figuring out the numerical value of a name, we can see if it adds up to 666. Using this method, many candidates for the Antichrist have been suggested. Some that I read about are the Pope or the Papacy, John Knox, Martin Luther, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, so forth. But the schemes for unlocking the number of the beast are as confusing as they are endless. So David Guzik, he went down the rabbit hole and followed many interpretations on his commentary. So if you want to read through all of those different interpretations, I have his link in the show notes to that commentary. And a lot of what I got for this episode today is from his commentary. So definitely check that out if you want to go a little bit more in depth. But there's one that he wrote about that I want to highlight. So he said that the letters of Jesus in Greek add up to 888. So he wrote that 666 may be a satanic counterpart to the name of Jesus, or 666 may be God's evaluation of such a satanic counterpart, how it falls short. The only reason I'm highlighting this one is that we've seen this unholy trinity repeated throughout this chapter. As compared to number 888, the number 666 may signify an unholy trinity. The two beasts are satanic imitations and were presented with a false Christ and a false John the Baptist who promotes the false god. 
Like I've said before, Satan can't create, but he can effectively deceive with imitation. Instead of obsessing with fear and interest about the imitation, the Antichrist, how much more appropriate is it for Christians to be interested in the genuine Jesus Christ? That's all we have for today. I'll share a past sermon with you in next week's podcast. And like I said, beyond next week, I don't want to promise too much. I'll arrive to Nepal next Thursday, and I'm not sure about internet connectivity or study times. I really, really hope to be able to continue this study, but I don't know when that'll happen. I know it will, but I don't know when. So check out the show notes for a link to a commentary from David Guzik on Revelation 13, as well as other commentaries. You can find me on Instagram at Sam Frankhart. Until then, Shabbat Shalom. Maranatha.